That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Totally 80s. The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. If this is the first time that you're joining us, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook, Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. You can also check us out on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out if you're so inclined. And joining me today is my partner in all things 80s. Of course, it is the other John Hughes. Hello, John. Lindsay, let's get animal. Animal. I want to get physical. You know, I have just what it takes to make a pro blush, and I'm going to do my best to make it happen. We are, of course, talking about the year, a very mixed bag of a year. It was the best of times. It was the best of times. It was the year. (laughs) 1981, or as we like to call it here on Totally 80s, one of the best years for music ever. And it was, if you are good at math, it was 40 years ago. Feel old yet? Feel old yet? I felt old for years, but this really drives it home. Well, some of the stuff from the year 1981 does sound very dated. It does sound kind of like it couldn't come out in any other year. But some of the stuff actually, like especially the new wave stuff, which I know we're going to get into, still sounds like the future to me. The future is now. And so I thought we would bring in someone from the Rhino family. Honestly, John, it's surprising to me that it took this long to get this man on the show to get him on Totally 80s because right. he is an expert in all things 80s. I'm already kind of shaking in my Capizio shoes because I feel <laughs> like we might get a little bit outclassed today. This man is going to bring the knowledge. So for our topic today, the music in 1981, joining us to talk all about it is a man who from the early 80s, when barely a teenager, was obsessed with a wide variety of music, all of which will be represented in the podcast today, from heavy metal to the newest of the new wave. What started as a list of songs played on the local underground radio shows developed into his career writing about music and culture. He started at his college paper and has gone on to write for Billboard, Rolling Stone, the LA Times, Spin, NPR, Vibe, and many more. And you can read his work on rhino.com as well as see him every friday on the rhino report across social media we know him best as one of the writers for totally80s.com and now he is a long overdue guest please welcome without further ado scott sterling scott hi hi john hi lindsay hey so as i was telling john the other john hughes I'm a little bit shook because I know you I know you bring the 80s knowledge. You know, they don't just hire anyone to write the 80s Rhino report. They they want an expert. I was saying that it's kind of like surprising we haven't had you on before, but maybe we just didn't want to be shown up too much. I know. I know you have the, the you're gonna drop the science. And this was a big year. This was probably your entry point year for like getting into music, right? I lived it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> 
I mean, the best way to really describe it is I lived it to the fullest degree that you could live something. I was so obsessed with music. And the early 80s, I was at the age where I was finally starting to question what I was listening to. I mean, I grew up in Detroit, so we were inundated with rock and roll. So I was a rock and roll baby. It was all about the hard rock. If it wasn't hard rock, it wasn't with me. But as the 80s and I got a little older and I started to kind of peek around in the musical world, everything just exploded. It, my, my mind opened up and it really was around 81 where I realized like, hey, wait a minute, there is so much more to music. I started consuming everything I could find about music that I didn't know. If I didn't recognize the face on the cover, I was drawn to it. And so that's how I discovered like so much music and it just never really stopped. And that's how I got here. And that's how you ended up here 40 years later. I know. The reason we're doing 1981, it wasn't just random. It was It's the anniversary of 1981, 40 years later. And it was a really incredible year. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, you liked a lot of different kinds of music. And they were all represented. If you look at a chart of what the top songs of 1981 were, it's a mixed bag. And we're going to get deep into the bag during this podcast. But I, upon, you know, if someone just asked me, you know, first impressions, what I think of 1981. Um, I like to think of it as the year of the second British invasion, the second great British invasion. And there's a few reasons for that. There is actually an article in The Guardian that is titled, Forget 1966, because 1981 was Pop's year of revolution. And The Guardian is a credible source, and they are <laughs> not wrong. That, of course, is a British publication. But there's seven, several reasons I think of it as why that invasion took place here on this side of the pond. One, of course, is a really obvious one, which is that on... 8181, August 1st, 1981, 8181, right here in America, not across America, but in many of the suburbs, MTV premiered, and it started beaming in all these weird, random British videos of any band that made a video into America's living room. So that's like a really obvious one. And actually, we did a really uh, fun podcast with uh, the, well, it was fun at the time, but with the late, great um, Schlesinger, where we talked all about the early memories of MTV, and you can check out that uh, totally at these podcast as well. MTV is a big one, but there were two huge singles that dominated the radio, at least where I grew up in Los Angeles, were top 10 hits, two of the biggest hits of the year that I think broke it open. And they are Soft Cells, Tainted Love, and Don't You Want Me Baby by the Human League. And John, when you and I were exchanging a few notes about preparing for this podcast, you wrote Human League Dare in parentheses, don't get me started. But John, that's what, I'm getting you started because I want to hear your thoughts, both of your thoughts about the human lead because I think Don't You Want Me Baby is kind of what started the British craze for new wave here in America. Uh, it definitely did in terms of mass market top 40 acceptance. That's for sure. Uh, Scott and I had very similar upbringings, very different than yours, Lindsay. You were here on the West Coast in L.A. You had K-Rock. You were spoiled. Yep. We grew up in the Midwest. I took it granted at the time. I'm very grateful for it now. But, yes, uh, you. where did you guys grow up? Scott, you said Detroit, but I always forget where you were from, John. Cle Cleveland. And it was all about Journey, Kansas, uh, Boston, anything, any band named after a city, Chicago. <laughs> um, and they, that dominated radio, not only AOR, but top 40 radio too. You had little things that broke through. Human League, Don't You Want Me, broke through. Things like Donnie Iris, Aaliyah, that broke through. That's yeah. a jam. 
the only reason that broke through Cleveland radio is because he was from Pittsburgh and he used to play Cleveland a lot. I mean, Cleveland used to be in the 70s much more adventurous in breaking acts like Roxy Music, David Bowie. But by the 80s, it was over. It was it was AOR City. So Human League Dare, to me, was so huge. Uh, I love Don't You Want Me. I had the 45. I couldn't afford the album. I was a too young of a kid. But my my sister's boyfriend had a cassette of dare and he let me borrow it because he said quote that one song's the only good song on there uh referring to don't you want me they he hated it my sister hated it. it this guy sounds like a robot this music is all there's no real instruments i'm like what did what you think part, you were right? sounded like a robot is bad work for that punk years later it's right. not sound like a robot so to this day, Dare is probably, mm, if not my favorite album of all time, my second favorite of al- album of all time, period. There's just no debate. Well, I got to uh, ask what it's competing with for that top spot then, just as an aside. Maybe uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders okay. from Mars. So uh, back to 81. So, yeah. So yeah. this record, like I remember hearing it in L.A. at least on the radio all the time. I should mention that Guardian article I just mentioned. The picture they say where they the real revolution started in 1981, they use a picture of Human League with this article. It was it was alien. It was foreign. The the cover was designed to look like a Vogue magazine. I didn't even know what Vogue was. Uh, <laughs> it was like, is he a man? Is he a woman? He's wearing makeup. <gasps> uh, he's got an earring. What's going on? And you had weird songs like Get Carter. I didn't know that was a theme song from a UK TV show that they were doing a cover of. You had weird songs like uh, I Am The Law. I didn't know what Judge Dredd was. It was just a really cool robotic sounding thing. And they played the crap out of Don't You Want Me in Cleveland, but they had to be forced to. I mean, I remember listening to American Top 40 every Sunday morning before church, which was on the way to church. You got to hear number 40 to number 30, maybe 29 if we were running late. <laughs> and I remember hearing Don't You Want Me on American Top 40 first before any Cleveland station finally added it. They waited until it was in the top 20 to finally break down and add it. That's how restrictive those formats were. Wow. And so, yeah, I, you know, I again, I can talk about Dare forever. I love action. Second follow-up single in the U.S., didn't do squat was love was love action was the video a reference to um uh the graduate with the wedding scene where phil Oki is like trying to interrupt the wedding between one of the human league girls and one of the human league guys a hundred percent and you know there was no video for that song it was a single in the uk before uh, Don't You Want Me. Don't You Want Me was the fourth single off of Dare in the UK, and the band hated it. They did not want it released as a single. They were like, we've done this album to death. People are sick of us. Can we let it go? And the and Virgin did it anyway <laughs> to their great pleasure, I'm sure, later. Uh, but there was no video for it, so that video was made for the US and for MTV specifically. Well, that that again goes back to my point that I was making about how MTV was so influential, beaming these people into homes. I mean, the visuals for Human League really stood out to me. I had such girl crushes on Joanne and Susan from the band. I never, it was my goal in life was to get my eyeliner as good as them. It never happened. I'm still trying. But they look like, well, first of all, they look like Patrick Nagel paintings come to life to me. So I was just like in love with their look. John Catherall and Susan Ann Sully. I loved the whole mythology about them. Like my version of like 
Lana Turner being discovered at Schwab's was this mythology. Like you probably know better than me. Didn't like Phil Oakey, like, didn't he discover them at like a Sheffield dance club called like the crazy Daisy or something like that? They were 17. They were still in what we would call high school here. They had to get permission from their mom to leave school, their moms to leave school and go tour because the human league, how this all came about, the human league had, you know, other band members that left to go form Heaven 17. Phil got also put out one of the greatest albums of, of 81, Penthouse to Pavement. I mean, that's such a great record in itself. The fact that we begat two, you know, great Sheffield bands from Human League in 1981. But go on. I'm sorry. Just had uh, but, to bring that up. But the, um, the, 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 the money was on Heaven 17. They wrote the songs. They were the guys that played all the music. It was like Phil's folly that uh, he kept the name. And they had a tour already committed, and they were going to get sued and lose money if they did not go on this tour. So Phil and Adrian Philip Wright went out and found these two girls dancing <laughs> and said, want to be in a band? And they said, sure. And here you go. Uh, what's great is if you watch all these old Top of the Pops performances from then, Philip Adrian Wright, his job was to project the slides behind <laughs> that, that was his job in the Human League. And he played some keyboards, I guess. But you could tell he was not into this. It was very punk rock because every Top of the Pops performance, Philip Adrian Wright is just like looking down with one finger on a keyboard, <laughs> like looking completely bored and disinterested. And I love it. Uh, was, he, was he not stoked about the transition they made from like the Bean Boiled era Human League to this very pop era Human League? I don't think it was distaste for pop. I think he was all in. I think it was they were very punk rock. I mean, it's weird to call Human League punk rock, but nobody had ever had an all synthesizer band make have a top 40 hit before or a number one album. Nobody grabbed two girls, you know, 17, from a club that they liked the way they danced and said, why don't you be our backing vocalist? I mean, the whole thing's very punk rock. Why did no one ever do that? I was going to clubs when I was 17. No one said, hey, I, nice eyeliner, cool haircut, want to be in a band that has like one of the biggest hits of the year. That never happened to me. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us for our Human League podcast. There are other things that happened in 1981, but I mean, I feel we could go deep. I do want to say one more thing before we, I want to actually get some thoughts from you, Scott, about this whole phenomenon of the British invasion. Little fun fact that shows how influential uh, the Human League were on MTV culture is I don't know if you know this, but Steve Barron, who directed the very cinematic looking video, which for the time in 1981 was a, a lot more advanced than mm -hmm. a lot of other videos on MTV. And he directed a, a bunch of amazing, very important videos, including in the same year he directed Take On Me and Money For Nothing. He directed Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And my, my, he told me that the reason that Michael Jackson hired him to do Billie Jean was because he liked the Don't You Want Me video because that video looked cinematic and high end for the time. And he was like, that's the aesthetic I want to go for, for Billie Jean. So, you know, it all begat, it was very important uh, video in more ways than one for opening up MTV culture. But the, I would actually, even though it wasn't on MTV so much, I would actually argue uh, that Tainted Love might've been even a bigger song. It's just in terms of how much, shelf life it's had i think i think tainted love by soft cell it's one of those examples where absolutely people especially in this country they know that as a soft cell song they do not know that as a glory jones song at all they that i mean talk about a band that made a song their own and that was one of the biggest songs 
in the country for the entire year. So, Scott, turning it over to you, this pair of songs, Don't You Want Me Baby and Tainted Love, they came out pretty close together, like a couple months maybe apart in the fall of 81, very shortly after MTV was beginning to beam into people's homes. And I really, I mean, I remember it from my faded memory. I remember this being a seismic thing. I remember it being talked about on TV, like the British are coming. And they cited specifically the kind of unprecedented success of these two very synth-driven, very eyeliner-caked bands from exotic England who were on the radio alongside Kansas and Chicago and all the other bands named after places. Yeah, well, for me, it was really interesting because, like I said, growing up in Detroit, it was very rock. It was very AOR. It was very bleh. But things in 81 and 80 were changing, and they were changing drastically. And at that time, Detroit had four rock and roll stations that were competing really fiercely. Rock, four stations, if you can imagine that. And so WABX, which is one of the more legendary sort of storied stations, got the idea that they were going to kind of jump ahead of everybody. And they went with this kind of wide open format. But actually what they were playing was just they were going top 40 as opposed to the top of the rocks. And they just started playing a, a melange of popular music and Don't You Want Me was one of those songs. And that sound from that record, between the drum machines and the synthesizers, it flipped a switch in my brain. But it was like that, that's what's cool. And it completely opened me up to the idea of synth or synth rock or new wave. And I completely dove, anything that had that sound, if I could get that feeling, that icy synthesizer sound, I was all about it. And the Human League had it, and it was, that song was, I still, I can, that opening drum beat, I can just feel like my blood pressure starting to go up and like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> just like, oh yeah, it's on now. Like you could just feel it. And then that big bass synth line comes in and it's just like, it just sounded so large. It was just like big robots were coming to take you away. It was just fantastic. And that really, that was that was the gateway drug. And because of that, I always have very, like wistful good feelings when I hear anything from that album. And Love Action is the track on that entire album. It just, it just takes me right back to that time. Just the vocal production, everything about it is beautiful. How could that not have even charted here? That just drives me nuts with that hook, that come on. What is Don't You Want Me Baby? What about Soft Cell though? Because I do think people May, not so much Human League. Human League are not considered a one-hit wonder in this country because they had hits with Fascination. They had a hit, obviously, with Human. Even Love Act, Love Action may not have been a hit, but they had other songs that made the charts. Unfortunately, I mean, to me, Soft Cell are one of the most important bands of the 80s. Mark Allman, one of the most important, you know, fig- I mean, the whole, like, post-punk provocateur, like, the whole, like, sleazy cityscapes they had about like bed sits and the red light district and like all the subversion of like, you know, the, the CD nightclubs and songs like CD films and like, you know, the whole porniness of it. I was really into. And, you know, uh, I, they did not show the sex dwarf video on MTV. That's not a video that got on MTV, but the whole like mythology about sex dwarf, which was like the video by Tim Pope with the, you know, the people in shackles and the red meat and the, the red light district workers that it took me until YouTube came around and someone did the Lord's work and put it up and kept putting it up when YouTube would flag it and take it down. There's so much mythology and color and excitement and sleaze that surrounds me 
in my mind when I think about soft cell and I do think the torch singing of Mark Allman and also as a, you know, LGBT plus icon. I mean, he's just amazing. They're considered a one hit wonder here, here, maybe not in England where they like sold out the O2 when they did their goodbye show. But like Tain, you look at any like greatest one hit wonders of all time list and Tana love is always on it, which is unfortunate that they're, as, as I've established, they're best known for a song that they did not write, you know, no publishing that, money, poor guys. Oh, the big story is that they didn't realize that it would have behooved them to put an original on the B side of the seven inch. So when, when that seven inch flew off the shelves, they get royalties for whatever song they put on the other side. Cause they have so many amazing songs of their own, you know, say hello, wave goodbye, bed sitter, you know, uh, in, uh, insecure me. I mean, memorabilia list goes on. But they didn't do that. They put like Tain of Love on the B side, like or or something, and they for some reason Where did our love go is the B side? Oh, that's it. They put yeah. another they yeah. put another cover song. They were very good at doing the Northern Soul thing. I would venture to say that if there are any that Americans in this country that kind of even know what Northern Soul is, there's a very good chance that their uh gateway to that was Tain and Love. I think you just hit on why they didn't translate here. They're very UK. They're very UK. Nobody here knows what a bed sit is. Uh, <laughs> nobody here knows what Northern Soul means, much less the artists that crossed over to that. So I think you had a song that was uh, had a hook that was that bump bump. I mean, that's what makes the song is that one little thing. And it's also telling their only other American chart hit is a song called What, which was another Northern Soul cover. What can I say? Do you know who did that originally? Because I, of course, heard that version and oh. actually heard Love first, but it's okay. I, if you I don't, don't know off the top of my head, but it's just funny that, you know, that really smells like Sire Records as opposed to the band saying, you know, let's, let's do another single for the U.S. And, you know, at least it got to number 95. Great. Um, whether they wrote their big hit, Tainted Love, whether they ever followed it up with another hit, the shelf life of this song, in terms of how many people have covered it, like, you know, obviously Marilyn Manson had a big cover with it. It spent 40 we 43 we weeks on the U.S. Hot 100, which I bet you, John, you know the chart stuff better than me. That, I think, was a record at the time. It, it probably held the record for a long time. It's long since been shattered, but it did hold that record for the longest time. And fun fact, I had read in an, an interview and I actually got to interview Mark Allman about two years ago and told him this and he hadn't heard it. So I was the one that got to tell him this. Um, our own Rob Sheffield has been a, a guest on this show. He wrote an article when it was the anniversary for Baby One More Time. And he wrote in the article that when Britney Spears was getting ready to uh, record the vocals for that song, she listened to Soft Sills Tainted Love over and over again because that like kind of like breathy, moany, kind of hiccupy, like desperate, sexy, cutesy thing that Mark Allman does so well. That was her inspiration for the baby one more time. Like, oh, baby, baby. And I can hear it. So I was the one that got to tell Mark Allman, did you know that you inspired Britney Spears' vocal? And he was quite pleased. <laughs> I'm so sure you were like He was very flat. He had no idea. I was very surprised, given that this was had been written about by Rob Sheffield for Rolling Stone that he wasn't aware of that, but I was very happy to impart the news. But I really do think whether these bands went on to be the biggest bands of the British invasion, and they weren't, you know, there were definitely ones that had long, more album sales or, or longer careers. They, this is what kicked open the doors. And that is what gets me now. Can't believe it took us this long to get to it. To the great new romantic wars of 1981 in which everyone won. <laughs> Duran Duran released 
their day. Except well. Japan. Japan is the only loser. <laughs> yeah, Japan actually, yeah, we could do a whole podcast on Japan, but Japan opened some doors for sure. But then in 1981, a few months apart, Duran Duran released their iconic debut album. But I think a couple months before that, their uh, sort of playful rivals, the Oasis to their Blur or their Stones to their Beatles, Spando Ballet also released Journey to, Journeys to Glory, their, their debut album the same year. They came out a couple months apart and um, there was a playful rivalry that came to a head on Pop Quiz in 1980, I believe 1984, where uh, Duran Duran and uh, Spano Ballet were on a game show. Compete? Have you not seen this on YouTube? They were on a game show together. Yeah. Now, spoiler alert, Duran Duran won, but in a way, Spandau kind of won because they were quizzed on trivia about <laughs> each other's songs. And Duran Duran knew more about Spandau Ballet songs than the other way around. So everyone won, is what I'm trying to say. Roger was the dark horse on that Duran team. Did he answer any questions right? Yeah, he answered the most questions, I think, if I'm remembering. Roger was buzzing in like... Like they were doing, I think Spandau was just trying to throw the game. Like they would, they would do name that tune and just play like a little bit of Hungry Like the Wolf and Spandau Ballet would be like, I don't recognize that. And I'm like, really? I think that was shade. That was pure shade. I mean, that was a rivalry that was a lot of fun. It was back in a simpler time. But it all started in 81 when these two representatives of the new romantic movement, uh, Spanda Ballet, and you're wearing your shirt today, your properly proper logo, Duran Duran shirt, John. Spanda Ballet from London at the Blitz Club. There's an amazing new Blitz documentary that came out, and that was, you know, the new romantic scene, the Blitz Club in Soho in London. But then, you know, representing the Midlands, representing Birmingham, were Duran Duran. And uh, this was, I mean, these two bands, more so than Soft Cell and and, uh, and uh, Human League, really, especially Duran Duran, broke through in a really big way. I think when most people, if you just ask them on the street, which I often do, I just stop people on the street and go, so... What do you think is the band that really broke the British, you know, uh, new wave revolution of the 80s? They'll probably say Duran Duran. That's probably, they're kind of the poster boys of this. So let's talk a bit you. about that. Uh, Scott, oh, see if you, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about Scott. Uh, completely missed us in the Midwest. 100%. Right in Los Angeles was awesome. <sighs> that really? was Los Angeles. I dreamed of that. Like, I would look at TV shows about Los Angeles just for that experience. Just to turn on the radio and hear good music and to go outside and to see people dressed in cool clothes. Like, we didn't get any of that stuff. Not and, in Detroit, Rock City. Well, we were rocking, trust me, we were rocking hard. <laughs> That's all we were doing. <laughs> exactly. Duran Duran is such an interesting band because, from really from the beginning of the Rio campaign through the 80s, they were my favorite band. Like, anybody who knew me, they were like, oh, that's Scott, that's Prince and Duran Duran guy. Like, mm. I was so about that band. And it really did start with that first record because I had just begun to buy import magazines. I remember buying a magazine called Flexi Pop because it came with a record on the cover. And you know, you go through it, and Duran Duran always had the coolest pictures. Oh, they yeah. had the coolest outfits, they had the best hair. And I heard Planet Earth, and I was like, oh, I like that band. But I just kind of like filed it away. And it wasn't until later that it came back around. It was with the Rio campaign. Because they specifically came to our town and did an in-store at a record store. And there were maybe, I'm going to say if there was two dozen people there, I'm over-exaggerating. Just a handful of people. But it was at this place called Sam's Jams. I could walk to from my house. And I walked and I got my Rio poster. 
And they all filed out except John. John didn't show up. And like, we were all crestfallen. And we were just like, what? But I got to meet the other four guys. They were amazing. Simon LeBon was such a star. He, just, he walked in with those cool aviator glasses, like the kind of wear in the desert with the production on the side. And he just, from the moment he hit the spot, he was just like a star. He talked to everybody and he was just so full of life and energy. And we were all like, who's that guy? And it just, I mean, the, the early Duran stuff is magical to me. It really is. And they were so cool. I remember Roger complimented my Rolling Stones tour shirt. <laughs> they were so cool. The thing that's interesting, since I sort of put them together, paired them together for this conversation, Duran and Spandau, is both of them later, and with Duran, it definitely started with the Rio album in a big way, were like kind of more like lush and romantic. Of course, in America, we know Spandau for true and gold, and they were like, prom ballads especially true you know duran duran had the these the, you know the rio album was definitely a more romantic kind of tropical record of course the videos helped with that of course a power ballad like save a prayer was like that but when you listen to journeys to glory by spando ballet or the first duran duran record they're much more like and i don't mean this in a negative way i just mean it in a neutrally descriptive way like they're much more cold sounding like you know planet earth is the debut single for duran duran which i like you i just i got on board with duran duran for rio and then worked backwards and and heard the album but you know that's a really like even the visuals for it the video where they're in this like uh, on this icy like so pedestal cool. of glass <laughs> and it starts with roger for some reason like they start their first video with like the the bust of the, you know, shoulders up bust of Greek God, Roger, the drummer, not of Simon, not of the lead singer, not of John, who of course, you know, is, is the, you know, my number one. And I too would have been crestfallen had he not shown up in Sam's jams, but like, you know, it, it's very, a lot of people, we all, we've talked about, we did a whole podcast with Sam Hollander, which everyone should check out about Duran Duran, where we got into the fact that, you know, so bizarrely Duran Duran were not, uh, critically respected at the time. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they did play up to that romantic pinup image. And and Spandau got about this as well. But when both of these bands first started, I think they were considered cool, post-punk, weird, edgy bands along the lines of, you know, uh, uh, an early Human League or Heaven 17 or a Gang of Four or a New Order or Joy Division. And these records, I think, these are the records that I think a lot of like, uh, people who are too hip for their own good will be like, oh, I like the early, I like the first Duran Duran record. I like the first Spandau record, but they really were very different from where the bands progressed. And they really are very like super 1981. And that takes me in a perfect segue to another anomaly and perfect 91, eight, sorry, perfect 1981 uh, debut album. And that is Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode. <laughs> because if someone had told me, I mean, that's a perfect record and all the singles, I mean, you know, when Depeche Mode perform now, they'll still always play Just Can't Get Enough and Dreaming to Me and New Life. But if someone had told me after handing me the Speak and Spell record and me digesting it and enjoying it very much, and they said, oh, you know, the guy who writes all the songs, he just left the band. I'd be like, well, they had a nice run. They had one good album. You know, I mean, the fact that this was a masterpiece of Vince Clark, who, of course, went on to uh, Yazoo and Erasure. But the fact, it, it's like a classic record, yet it's a complete anomaly 
in the Depeche Mode discography, right? They, they were a boy band. They started off as a boy band. I mean, I find it. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were pinup. In matching sweaters. Exactly. Uh, you look at those early, again, Top of the Pops appearances, and they're, they're definitely going for a boy band thing. They'll tell you they started off with that sort of image, and, and they had to shake it. They had to shake the disease. They had to shake the uh, disease. Is that why Vince left? Because that was like, I can't see him being on board with being a pinup guy. Vince left because Vince left, you know, who knows what's going on in that guy's head. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm shocked. They don't ever cover a, what's your name off that record in, in concert anymore. Oh, you're such a pretty boy. <laughs> it's a great record. You know, it turned out it's a moot point because obviously last year's rock and roll hall of fame ceremony ended up being canceled and it just became like a, an HBO special. But I do recall that before the pandemic happened in Depeche Mode, it just been uh, it just been announced that they were among the class of 2020 inductees. Someone had asked Vince Vince uh, Clark if he had planned it on attending the ceremony because obviously he was being inducted, and he said no. He had like no interest in in. I don't attending. think there's bad blood because he and Martin Gore just did a record together. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad yeah. blood thing. I think he's just yeah. a guy who's always kind of moving forward like a shark. You know, the fact that he went on to do Yaz or Yazoo and then ended that and you know obviously has had a very long run with erasure but this it record you, it just tells you the difference between the uk and the us in the uk speak and spell depeche mode boy bands top of the pops top 40 hits in the us that was a weird bizarre exotic cover that you what is that a goose what's going on there this you know dark band like post-punk synth yeah and, you know, then you hear a song called What's Your Name? <laughs> You're such a pretty boy. It's like, wait, this well, doesn't fit. Let's talk a little bit because you were talking about how when Human League and Don't You Want Me Baby and Dare came out that, you know, there'd really been no band like that that was synthesizer based that had a top 40 hit. And, you know, and then we heard that with the Soft Cell song. And we heard it, you know, with, with Duran Duran and the early Spandau stuff. But like, this was really unprecedented a band like Depeche Mode, which is of course why they rightfully are in the rock and roll hall of fame. But do you remember what reaction a band like them got when speak and spell, which is, you know, obviously name of a, of a great electronic toy as well. Um, but what was the reaction at the time? Did people take them seriously besides the boy band thing? Just did people take bands like Depeche Mode or, or human league for that matter? Seriously. in that they, especially from your vantage point, Scott, as someone who was in rock and roll Detroit, Detroit Rock City. This was a band that didn't, these were bands that didn't have guitars. That's blasphemous, right? Their whole deal was so anti, it, it was not Detroit. It was the opposite of everything that the city was about. So of course, I absolutely loved it because it was, it was, it was, it was something else. It was the, it was the other. And for some reason, those early Depeche Mode singles and videos, it was almost like a how-to. It was just like, you get free keyboards, you get a cute guy who can sing. And like literally my first real band, we were completely imitating Depeche Mode. It was, no three, way. Guys, it was three guys with keyboards. And then for a singer, we threw a loop in there. We kind of threw a little Yaz slash Erasure because we found uh, a, a black singer, he was male, but he had this real Alison Moyer big rich voice. And we just played really icy synthy stuff. And he would sing with this really soulful voice. And we made some records and, well, we made some tapes. And you know, <laughs> our big our big night, we opened for China Crisis at St. Andrews Hall. Um, wow. We had a few, we had a few cool good. shows. That was huge. And they thought we were great. They loved us. 
Yeah, we, were, we were a fun little band, the Lime Society. The Lime Society? <laughs> the Lime Society. Because that was like a cocaine reference or anything. That's what everybody thought. And the whole point was our lead singer was we were all so like straight and clean and we didn't do anything. We didn't drink and do drugs. We were all straight as a line. So we were the mm. Lime Society. Yeah, that might have been mis misconstrued, misunderstood. Everybody was like, oh, it's those Coke kids on keyboards. I mean, it was like, the 80s, you know. It was the Can 80s. You play, but did you play guitars by any chance? I wish. I yeah. played keyboards, and I was able to incorporate my guitar every now and again. But it was all about the keyboards. And it was really from Depeche Mode. It was just that idea. It was almost, for me, how I imagine a lot of kids felt looking at the Beatles on that Sullivan. Like, we literally looked at it, and we're just like, Oh, that's how you do it. And so, it's like, funny. I begged my dad for the money to get a sampling keyboard. Like, we all got a keyboard. We got our singer. And we're just like, we're going to do it like they did it. And it just, they really like opened the door in how to sort of like enter that world of music without being this guy with the guitar and the hair, which I grew up on that. But I was like, no, there's something cooler than that. And it was that, it was that idea of like, we have the, all this sound at our disposal. We can sound like anything and we wear cool leather jackets and have cool haircuts too. To it's so funny you say that because we had a group of uh, musical misfits in my high school and we started a band, Facts and Friction, F-A-X-F-R-I-X-I-O-N, thank you. And we had a drummer and I was always continually pushing to get rid of the drummer and have a reel-to-reel. Uh, behind us because it looked cooler where we could just go and turn it on and we don't need a real drummer. Exactly. We never had a drummer. It was always drum machine. It was exactly like the We were stuck with a drummer. <laughs> we were like, yeah, we don't play that drum stuff. No, we got a machine. Well, I started, it wasn't a real band. We never got to open for China Crisis or anything exciting like that. But I did have a little band with my with my gal pals when I was a kid that was also inspired by one of the most auspicious and important debut albums of 1981 on this side of the pond in the new wave genre, but not British. And that was, our band was called The Current Events. We had a really cool logo that looked like it was all electrified and like, you know, giving off sparks, get it, current, the current events. That's and we awesome. were we actually pretty much never got further than having a logo. Uh, we wrote a couple songs, but I think I can put it in perspective where when my little sister wanted to be in the band and didn't play anything, we were like, sure, you can play kazoo. So that's how like are <laughs> about it. Kazoo's been really big off in the 80s the way synthesizers did. But anyway, I think you know where I'm going. Say, I will say we had more photo sessions than we had rehearsals. So well, you know, it was the 80s and we had our outfits planned. We had our logos. I, I storyboarded or scripted what our music video was going to look like. Yes. Exactly. We had a guy at our school who was going to play the love interest in the video. We had everything planned except we only had like two songs, one of which was good, but I give credit to my friend Lisa. She wrote that one. My song was not as good. So after a brief argument about whether my song Love Me Too or her song Stars should be the single in the video, Lisa wrote the better song. I'm the bigger person. I want to do what was best for the current event. So stars was our single, but we never got any further than that. But I digress. It's all connected. One of the big de debut new wave albums by an American band in 1981 was someone who I hope will be in the rock and roll hall of fame by the time people are listening to this or soon thereafter. And that is the go-go's beauty and the beat turns 40 years old this year. It came out in 1981 changed everything absolutely they should have got it the go-go should have gone to the rock and roll hall of fame a long time ago 
my go-go shirt on today absolutely change everything and i unlike some of the albums that we may talk about during this podcast which are great albums but kind of seem like artifacts of the time their production or whatever just sort of seems like a little dated i think this is one of i'll go on i'll go i'll say it uh, you know i will think uh, beauty and the beat is one of the best debut albums of all time and it absolutely holds up i think it could have come out in the 90s i think it could have come out in the 60s think it could come out in the 70s it's not tied to the year 1981 there's not a bummer song on it every song it sounds like a greatest hits record honestly like if you didn't know anything about the go-go's and i said here's the go-go's greatest hits you'd be like well they had a lot of great singles every song on it sounds like a single and you were mentioning on the american top 40 thing and i i've told this story before but I very, very specifically remember watching American Top 40 with my family on like, was it on Sunday mornings? It was in the morning usually when they played on TV. And uh, I remember Casey Kasem giving us the fun fact that this was the first album that had gone to, by this point it was probably 1982. I think it took to 1982 for it to go to number one. But he was announcing that it had gone to number one and this was the first time an all-female band that wrote all their own songs, played all their own instruments, had done that. And even at that very young age, I remember, I was impressed by it. But I remember thinking, that's never happened before. That's weird. And you know what's even weirder? As has not friggin' happened since. Mm-hmm. 40 years later, there's, yeah, there's been plenty of very great, you know, all-female bands that write their own songs, play their own instruments, produce their own stuff. None have had it gone to number one with an album. The Go-Go's did it once and it's never been repeated. And I th- I'm very happy how in recent years with the Head Over Heels musical, Kathy Valentine's memoir, the fabulous documentary that was on Showtime, and now, of course, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction that's so long overdue, uh, that the Go-Go's, I think, now finally are getting what I knew all along is that they're, they were just so important. And I think they influenced not just a lot of female musicians, like people like Kathleen Hanna, but I think, or even Miley Cyrus or someone like that. But I mean, I've heard Billy Joe Armstrong talk about how important they were to him. I would love to talk. What are your, do you guys remember what a big deal it was when this band went to number one? The Go-Go's were huge in my world. And I, I discovered them in a really interesting way. Uh, in grade school, me and my best friend were both really into music. We were both huge, huge fans of the police. And so the police came on the Ghost in the Machine tour, and my friend Jack's dad took us. He got us pretty good seats on the side of the stage. Great. We're super excited. We're going to see the police. Opening band, the Go-Go's. Oh, these I'm girls, so jealous. These girls come out on stage and just were on every song. You were just like, oh, that's the best. That's the best song. I love that song. Then the next song, you're like, oh, my God. Like, we were like little... We were like little kids. We were just like, we were little kids. We were just like jumping up and down. We were so excited. I remember after they played, we ran to the merch booth. And we were like, what do you got for the Go-Go's? And all you had were these little girl sweatshirts. They were tiny. These little beige, they were beautiful. They were like the same, like this beige with the album cover, like like perfectly on the, on the front of it. It was just so cool, but it was so tiny. And he's like, that's all we got. And we're just like, ah. So we had get one? Just, Stretch it out. I would have absolutely gotten one. I mean, that's an iconic record cover as well. And the record cover is important. And it's cute because I I did an interview with Kathy where she said, you know, they bought all of these very nice towels at like Macy's or some department store, (laughs) did the photo shoot, and then took the towels back because they couldn't, they did it, you know, roll. You know, they came, the Go-Go's came from a total punk rock. You know, I'm from LA as we've 
easily established during this conversation. They came from my hometown. They had a song about it, this town. They were from the LA punk scene, the same one that begat, you know, X and a lot of other bands that are, were less successful, like the, the bags and the germs. Belinda Carlisle was in the germs for a hot minute and they became, you know, the biggest band to come out of that scene. But I think they were, they were eye opening for little girls like me who, you know, whether I went into music or not, but definitely, Oh, you could being in music is cool. It's like being in a band's like a gang. These girls were attractive and they were cute, but they weren't really leading with a sexy thing. Like they were just wearing like rags and they were just like a gang, cool girl gang. But I think they were really important for boys too. Cause here you were, you were young boys opening, you know, going to see the police and you saw these girls on stage and your first thought was like, this is cool and I need to buy their merch, you know? I like, mean, that's immediately. Cool. Like, I bought Beauty and the Beast straight away. This Town, I still, is one of my favorite songs by anybody. That guitar line is, it's like Dick Dale. It's so beautiful. It's just yeah. such great music. And the fact that they were all girls was kind of secondary, oddly enough. I mean, even though I was like, I was like, oh, Jane's my favorite. And Jack was like, oh, Belinda's my favorite. Like, we immediately had favorite ones. It was just, the music was just so good. So yeah, I can tell you the impact it had on another segment of the population just by reminding you guys of the great L.A. Uh, cover band comprised of a bunch of gay bears called the Gay Gays. <laughs> that do They're nothing to cover actually, the songs. Actually, when, when we thought the Go-Go's were breaking up or when we thought they were retiring from the touring circuit and they did their uh, final show at the Greek Theater around 2014 or 15, obviously – you know, like a lot of bands, they said they were retiring or breaking up and it was, uh, you know, a little bit of a false alarm. But when they did that, the after party was with the gay gays playing. <laughs> so, now in my head, all I can imagine is a Beauty and the Bears, Beauty and the Bears. with the towels. That would be really cool. And they yeah. did do a photo shoot with the towels. And the of course, you have to. But it was you an important to. record to go back to the towels thing. Is like they embraced their femininity. Their album was called Beauty and the Bee, and it showed them doing beauty rituals of like putting on face masks and uh, towels and stuff. And by the way, before that Greek theater concert, I totally did that. I put on a face mask and put a towel on my <laughs> and a you know cream rinse on my hair and like relaxed and had a little pre-show ritual. But you know, on the back, you see them like you know, in their bubble baths, doing girly things like eating bonbons and drinking pink champagne and like, you know, talking on the phone, gossiping with their gal pals. So they, they certainly weren't trying to be like, oh, we're, we're one of the guys. Like they embraced the fact that they were chicks and they were cool chicks and they were feminine and they wore mini skirts and makeup, but they also were badass and tough. And to me, they taught me, you can be both of those things. You can be badass and tough, but you can also be proud of the fact that you're a girl and you can also like girly things and like boys and sing songs about liking boys. And, but you could also sing a song like lust to love where you could be like, sort of, that's almost like an early sex positivity song of being like, Oh, I was just like fooling around, you know? And I remember singing that song when I was a kid and my mom being like, what's that song you're singing? <laughs> lust to love. All right. All right, guys. Well, it looks like we've barely even begun to get into the first six months of 1981. We have so much left to cover. This is going to have to be a two-parter. So, Scott, please, can we have you come back and join us again? You can't get rid of me at this point. I'm here. Let's do this. I'm awesome. coming back. And I'll come back the week after that. 
<laughs> I'll hold you to that. Don't be joking with me because we will have you back for 82, 83. We got many more years to talk about the 80s, but we still have to get into 1981. So we will be back. I've been Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by John Hughes and Scott T. Sterling. Thanks for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.